0: Do you ever wonder why it takes people so long to wake up? And what is the connection between the final chapter of the book of Numbers, Sefer Bamidbar, and a holiday we'll be celebrating in less than two weeks? All this and more on the Tanakh Talks podcast. Live from a lounge food in the hills overlooking Jerusalem, this is the Tanakh Talks podcast. I'm your host Jacob Beasley. Several people have already written nice things to me about the previous podcasts, our podcast in which we interviewed Rabbi Alex Israel about his new book Kings 2. Thank you very much for everybody who wrote. If you haven't listened to it, it's a longer podcast, but definitely worth your while to hear a master of his craft talk about the Book of Kings. Very exciting. Congratulations also to Ephraim Fruchter who correctly deduced what the name of the podcast is about. The double entendre being, of course, that these are talks about Tanakh, but also giving the Tanakh a chance to talk to us. Hence, Tanakh Talks. Thanks also to Gabe Silberman from Leva Torah for designing our podcast logo. Today, we'll be talking about the last chapter of Sefer B'midbar, a very enigmatic chapter. The text itself is not difficult to understand. A simple read of Numbers 36, Paraklamabab and Sefer Bimidbar reveals that the heads of Menasheh come to Moshe with a very simple complaint. They almost phrase it in a Talmudic manner. On one hand, Hashem commanded you to give the land as an inheritance to the children of Israel by tribe, by Shevet. Yet on the other hand, Hashem commanded you to give the inheritance of Salofchad, our brother, to his daughters, not to his sons. And this leads to a problem. What if they marry somebody else from another tribe? This, of course, leads to a technical problem. Should they marry out of the tribe, the land will be lost to the tribe of Menasheh. And Moshe hears their complaint, and he turns to Hashem, and he receives the following answer, The tribe of Manasseh speaks honestly, they speak well, and here is the new command, Take three as it were. The daughters of Tzlovchad can marry anybody they want, as long as it is within their own tribe. Therefore, the land that they inherit will not be given away to other tribes in Israel. And that is the story a simple story, and the chapter concludes, these are the mitzvot that Hashem commanded Bnei Israel through Moshe at Arvot Moav, at the plains of Moab, all your day near alluding to the fact they're about to go into the land, they're about to go to Jericho. The question remains, however, the daughters of Tzlovchah placed their claim to Moshe back in Numbers 27. This is nine chapters ago. Where have the heads of the tribe of Manasseh been? Why did the heads of the tribe of Manasseh not react immediately? As soon as they know that the girls are going to inherit, they understand the problem that's going to arise, that they may lose the land should they marry outside the tribe. Why do they wait nine chapters? On today's Tanakh Talks podcast, I'm going to share three possible answers. Stay tuned. The first answer has to do with a close reading of the list right before the request of the daughters of Slovchad. The daughters of Slovchad place the request that they want a share in the land, for which they are universally praised, in chapter 27. Immediately preceding the request of the daughters of Slovchad is a census taken in chapter 26. The census counts the amount of Jews that are living at the time of the entry into the land, but a close reading tells me something that I did not know in the previous census 40 years beforehand, way back at the beginning of the book of Numbers. Now, Jews are not only being counted by tribe, they are also being counted by family. With that in mind, this leads to the question, well, how is the land going to be allocated? Is it being allocated by tribe, or is it going to be allocated by family? When the daughters of Selophad hear that the count is being done by the family, they suddenly realize, well, perhaps this is the way the land will be allocated as well, and therefore they make the request. In fact, the tension in the text between whether or not the land is allocated by family or by tribe is a tremendous discussion in the Talmud in Baba Batra, which goes through all the different verses and tries to come to some sort of resolution. Is it by those who leave Egypt, by those who come into Israel? And the discussion is too extensive to discuss here. Clearly, from a close reading here, it's by the family unit through which the land will be allocated. If that is so, the heads of the tribes of Manasseh really have nothing to complain about. Suddenly, however, in chapter 34, in our parsha, Moshe receives a command to give to the Pharaohs in chapter 34, verse 13. This is the land which we're to apportion for inheritance by lot that Hashem is commanded to give to the nine and a half tribes. Tribes, not families. And all of a sudden, the tribe of Manasseh, you can imagine saying, Wait a second, if the land is by tribe and not by family, then we have a claim. This is only strengthened by chapter 35, which discusses how certain tribes will be giving land, how all the tribes will be donating cities to the Levim. Six cities are going to be set aside as cities of refuge. And you can imagine people saying, well, here's all this land, and all of a sudden I'm losing these cities and I'm losing this territory. All of a sudden, the heads of Menasheh are starting to get very concerned. And that leads to they're raising the question, not in chapter 27 when we would have expected it, but only after it's clarified that the allocation would occur by tribe, not by family in chapter 36. A second possibility comes from not the book of Numbers, but the book of Chronicles. If you remember in last week's Parsha, after Moshe concludes the agreement with the tribe of God and Ruven, a representative of the tribe of Manasseh named Yair goes and conquers cities in Gilad, on the other side, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We always assume when we read this text that Yair is from the tribe of Menasheh, because that's what it says in Numbers. The first book of Chronicles, divrei Yamim Aleph, Chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, says as follows. Afterwards, Chetzron, from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Manasseh, has relations with the daughter of Machir, father of Gilad. He marries her when he's six years old, and she bears him Seguv, and Seguv then has a child called Yeir. All of a sudden, we discover that Yeir actually comes from two tribes, not just from Manasseh, but also from Judah. He's actually a fifth-generation descendant. Yeir ben Seguv ben Chetzron ben Peretz ben Judah. Chronicle tells me the year Ben-Masheh is actually Yair from Judah, And this explains why the t- heads of Manasseh would suddenly awaken to the issue. What have we just seen? We've seen that Yair, son of Manasseh has taken over land from the tribe of Manasseh but by the virtue of his grandmother being from the tribe of Manasseh meaning the marriage of a daughter from the tribe of Manasseh to a son of the tribe of Judah, they feared that what Yair did set a precedent. He came from a marriage between Manasseh and Judah, and this would lead to transfer of ownership from land that once belonged to the tribe of Nasheh to a member to the tribe of Judah. And they feared that what Yair did, belonging to two tribes, but from the girl's side from Manasseh, from the father's side from Judah, this would lead to a transfer of ownership from land belonging from the, that originally belonged to the tribe of Nasheh to the tribe of Judah. Hence, they raise the question here, not because of a misunderstanding of the law, but rather because they see the precedent being set by Yir ben Manasseh, who's really been Yair ben Yehuda. Ye'ir ben Zeguf ben Chetzron ben Pereshudah. But either way, they see this precedent and they start to get f- fearful that their land will be taken by other tribes. Was this a good thing for B'nai Israel? We will talk about that issue when we come back. Welcome back. We've been trying to explain the question of why the tri- heads of the tribe of Manasseh hesitated so long to approach Moshe to ask about what would happen to their land if it was given to the daughters of Slovkad and the consequences if they would subsequently marry out of the tribe. We've given two possible answers, which is first they were under the apprehension or the misapprehension that the land was to be distributed by family only. Second, perhaps the actions of Yir, Ben, Manasseh, who was actually Yir, Ben, Seguv, etc., all the way from the tribe of Judah, may have caused him to question to whom the land belonged. Let's conclude, however, with a separate question. Is this a good or bad thing? If we go back to the beginning of last week's parasha, Parshat Matot, Moshe suddenly addresses the laws of how to release people from their vows to the heads of the tribes. This is the first time we actually hear him directly address the heads of the tribes. The Ramban says, because this is such a serious issue, it's not meant for all the people, it's rather meant for the courts, people of stature. Whatever the case may be, all of a sudden, tribal identity is really rearing its head. We have each tribe sending its own contingent to fight Midyan in chapter 31, the tribes of God and Ruven appearing in chapter 32. Until this point, the whole enterprise of Sefer Midbar has been tried to forge a unified nation, camped around the Mishkan, which is really its moral center. Moshe has 70 advisors, but it does not say that they are split up by tribal affiliation. Until now, really, the only mention of the times that tribes are mentioned has been in negative connotations, whether by the spies or the rebellions or the staffs. And suddenly, we see this new tribalism appear right after, during, right after the war of Midian. Our Parsha is the culmination of this emphasis on one's tribal identity. Now we have these new restraints, previously unheard of, that you can no longer marry outside the tribe. What we see happening to the Jewish people at the end of the book of Numbers is that suddenly the national fabric is starting to crumble. Replacing it is a sense of tribal identity only. The same tribes that request from Moshe the right to dwell on the other side of the Jordan River are suspected of succession when they, even before Joshua dies. This is in Joshua, in Joshua 22. The family of manasseh that lives in Gilad, they are the ones who trigger the regulations against intertribal marriage. We see that the ramifications of their action will come back to haunt them in Judges chapter 11. It talks about Yiftach of Gilad was a powerful man, the son of a prostitute, and Gilad fathered Yiftach. The wife of Gilad gave birth to sons. When they grew up, they evicted Yiftach, saying, you will not inherit from our father. What is the son of a prostitute? The Rudak says something fascinating. It became the tradition in Israel that in order to avoid changes of inheritance from tribe to tribe, a woman from one tribe would not marry a woman from another. If a woman would fall in love with a member of another tribe, she would be sent out without property. They would call her a whore, a prostitute, a lover of a man from another tribe. This is what happens, suggests Redak to Gilad's mother. And of course, the entire book of Judges, the entire book of Shoftim, describes the progressive dissolution of national identity. Its first chapter describes how some tribes work together to fight to liberate areas of the land, but other tribes are left to fend for themselves, and some of them never find a home. Devorah can call out for help, and not every tribe will feel the need to answer. Gidon barely manages to avoid civil war between his tribe and the stronger tribe of Ephraim. Yiftah, in fact, doesn't even try to avoid civil war. He seems to welcome it, that. and that leads to the deaths of 42,000 people. So our chapter in the Book of Numbers actually foreshadows the dissolution of the national fabric and its replacement by tribal identity. So what is the solution to this tension between Jews as a people and everyone's individual tribal identity? Rabbi Simpson Raphael Hirsch, in his commentary to Numbers 18 by Midbar Yudchet, differentiates between a shevet and a mateh. Both mean staff, both mean tribe. But he suggests the following. The word shevet implies independence. It's a sign of authority where one tries to rule over another. The word matet, which is what Bamidbar uses 91 times, does not imply independence. It implies interdependence, where one support another. The role of the tribes was to ultimately support each other, not to live break out on their own in some independent fashion. Judges ends with a horrendous civil war between the tribe, but its final chapter describes the institution of one of Judaism's greatest holidays, Tuba Av. The Mishnah in Tanit says that there were no two happy days for Israel, then Yom Kippur, and Tuba Av, the 15th of Av. The Talmud in Tanit, page 30, says what was so special about Tuba Av? Why was the 15th of Av such a special day? The Talmud makes the following fascinating suggestion. At the end of the civil war between the Jewish people and the tribe of Binyamin, there are only several males left, and they make the decision that from now on, Jews from different tribes can intermarry with each other. They do this ostensibly to save Binyamin, but on a deeper level, this is a recognition that the exclusive focus that they had on their tribal identity, at the expense of their Jewishness, at the expense of their peopleness, had led to this disaster, the catastrophe that was the civil war between tribes in Israel. Sadly, one can point to our chapter at the end of the book of Numbers and say, this is where it begins. Tuba, however, is where it ends, where Jews give up their particular identity, or at least reduce their emphasis on it. What was missing in Judges that was there in Numbers was the Mishka, the house of God and the center, around which all the tribes would dwell. And this, I think, is the lesson of our parasha. As they go into Israel, they each took their own particular Plot of land, their allocation, but they forgot that there was a tabernacle in the center. They forgot the mishkan. They forgot where. They forgot the centa- They forgot the centrality of Hashem within the camp. Let us hope that we go through Tishaba B'av, the ninth of Av, the commemoration of the destruction of our Beit Hamikdash, of our temple, due to sinat chinam, baseless hatred. And instead, let us replace it with tuba of the celebration of avat chinam, love for each other. You've been listening to Tsnak Talks podcast. I'm Yaakov Beasley.